family here. Uh, this this uh, last couple days have just been really fun getting to know some of you. I, I look forward to possibly uh, connecting with some of you after the service here this morning. Uh, and I ask that you uh, please, please pray for the weather tomorrow. Uh, some, of you, some of you kids uh, I know might want another day of school off. Some of you parents are hoping they actually do have school. Um, but I actually have a flight to catch to head back uh, to New York where I'm from. And so if you could pray with me that I actually get that because I have to get back to some stuff. But it's just been a, an awesome couple days with you guys here, and I am just stoked to be able to come and open up the Word of God with you here this morning. Um, what was really cool and made it kind of extra special um, was like pulling into the church a couple times and seeing the, the sign out there on the main road, you know, all flashing in big red letters, welcome to Pastor Andrew Foss. And I don't know if you know this or not, or maybe you saw this this week or not, but the verse immediately following the welcome to Pastor Andrew Foss was there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. So, <laughs> I'm telling you now, it's not me. It's all about Jesus. That was a complete coincidence. I didn't, I didn't pay him anything to put it up there. It just happened to be. Um, but here this morning, I, I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you about my Savior. And uh, so, um, it, it is just an absolute pleasure to be able to do that with you here this morning. Hey, before we hop into the text this morning, I'm going to ask you a couple questions uh, that will hopefully frame where we're going here this morning. So, so listen up. If you have ever made at least one choice in your life that seemed right at first, that seemed right at first, um, but then it actually turned out to be a bad move, possibly even horribly wrong, I want you to just raise your hand. You might not know the specifics of it, but you know for sure you've blown it in some way. Now keep the hands up. Keep them up. Keep them up. Keep them up nice and high. All right, let me ask you a, another question. Now, keep that hand up, or, or you can put up another one. Uh, if, you, if, you actually, if you actually, at any time in your life, made a choice or decision, and you knew it was wrong beforehand, but you did it anyway, just raise your hand up or put, maybe put up a couple feet if that's you too. Now, keep them up really nice and hot. I want you to look around this room. Look around this room. You are the most pitiful group of people I've ever met in my life. Oh, I, I can't believe you would do stuff like that. Shame on you. No, I, I can believe that's true of you. And, and even though I'm meeting some of you for the very first time um, and actually making eye contact with you, you, you know that's true of me as well, right? The Bible's pretty clear on that. Um, I, I want you to see here this morning in Mass Road that this sermon is a, is a message for all of us because all of us have blown it in one way or another. All of us have sinned either intentionally or unintentionally. All of us have traveled down roads that in hindsight we wish we would not have gone down. And all those roads have left us wondering and they've left us wanting and they've maybe even plagued us with questions of, have I permanently screwed up my life? Will I ever get back on the right track? Have I, have I thwarted or disqualified myself from God's purposes and plans in my life? Now listen up. The first six verses of the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1, give us insight into why we actually travel down those roads in the first place. And it also points us to how we can begin to avoid them in the future. You ready to read it? Could I ask that you stand for the reading of God's word if you're able here this morning? Thanks for that. Give them honor and privilege for doing that. Let's read this together. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. 
They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, would you add your blessing to the public reading of your word here this morning? Show us Jesus today, and that will be enough. And all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Now, we just read, we just read that this story takes place in the days when who ruled? When the judges ruled. When the judges ruled. Now, if you didn't know, the book of Judges is the book that immediately precedes this one. Gang, these were dark, dark, dark days. You got to know that the days of the judges were a low watermark in the nation of Israel's history. Generally, it was a time when evil seemed completely unrestrained. Now, for those of you who have been doing the 90-day Bible reading, this, this makes sense, right? That's true of this time period. And maybe you'll remember a guy by the name of Ehud, who, who actually um, pretended to be a nice guy, but then took a knife and stuck it in the belly of an overweight king as he was relieving himself on the toilet. I mean, that's pretty sick, but that's, that's in the Bible, in the book of Judges. Maybe you uh, remember uh, a, a woman by the name of J.L., who actually lulls an escaping general to sleep with her in her tent and then takes a spike and just pounds it right through his temple. That, that's in the book of Judges as well. Then there's Jephthah, who for all intents and purposes was a gang leader and then comes back from war uh, and, and having this major military victory and actually makes a vow that he was going to sacrifice the very first thing that comes out of his house. And do you know who it was? His daughter. And so he kills his daughter to fulfill his vow. And gang, these are just three of the judges that we read about in the book of Judges. And get this, they're supposed to be the good guys. That's how messed up the people were during the time of the judges. The days were as dark as the nights during this time period. Now, as you read through the book of Judges, you'll see that it takes its readers through a number of downward, downward spirals, just kind of looking through the lens of the Israelites, and they just go just downward and downward and downward during this time period. And it's important to note that each, uh, each cycle brings the nation of Israel lower and lower in their unbelief and sin. Each cycle just takes them further and further and further away from God. And, and so that cycle, it actually first starts with disobedience. Now, I want you to know that that disobedience manifested itself in a ton of different ways, but it was ultimately rooted in their unbelief. In their unbelief. Now, don't get me wrong. They believed that God existed. They, they believed in him, but they didn't really treasure him as their provider and as their sustainer. And so their disobedience often led to various types of consequences in the form of divine discipline. Now, I encourage you to go back sometime this week and to read the book of, of uh, Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy chapter 28 uh, specifically, because it's an intense chapter about obedience to God and disobedience and the consequences that follow if you, if you obey or if you disobey. But real quick, listen up to what the Lord said to the nation of Israel. Uh, it's just one of the many consequences they suffered because of their unbelief. Listen to this. This is in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, 23, and 24. It says, if you do not obey the Lord your God, if you do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees that I'm giving you today, the sky over your head will be bronze, 
the ground beneath you iron, and the Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. Now that sure sounds like a famine, right? It sounds exactly like what's happening here in the opening verses of Ruth chapter 1. Okay, so it's disobedience, that's the first part of the cycle, and then discipline. But I want you to know, gang, that the reason for this discipline is to correct them. It's to teach them. It's to reform them. Now, ultimately, God's discipline is really to deliver them from themselves. Think about that. More on that in a moment. And I want you to know here that these deliverers, these judges would come in. And, and I don't, when you hear that word judge, I don't want you to think like a modern-day judge, like in a courtroom with a robe and, and a gavel. But these judges were more like warrior generals who would really kind of help the nation of Israel uh, through uh, invading armies that God would allow to come in as part of his ongoing discipline. Now, the critical part of the cycle, the critical part of the cycle is that there was a choice to be made between the discipline and their deliverance that would either extend the discipline or it would accelerate the deliverance. Again, we read about it in our call to worship. Matt read it from Deuteronomy 30 earlier. Do you recall that? There was a step in the cycle that I intentionally, that I intentionally left out, and that's the word repentance. Repentance. Again, when the people returned to the Lord, when they owned up to their own sin, when they humbled themselves, Scripture says the judge arrived, the oppression ceased, the crops returned, and life was restored. And so the ever-repeating cycle was first kicked off by their sinful disobedience. Then God's discipline would come. Then the people's repentance would follow. And then finally, the Lord's deliverance would occur. And that cycle went on. If, you, if you've read the book of Judges, that cycle went on about 12 times in the book of Judges. And again and again, each time, their disobedience was more and more extreme and it would, it would make them number and number to their own sin. And, and God's discipline would actually increase with greater and greater intensity. And their repentance actually took longer and longer each time. And so their discipline was extended even more each time. And then the judge that was sent to deliver them would be less, in, less inclined to deliver them with each and every passing cycle. Because each successive judge would be blinder and blinder to their own sinful disobedience. This was, this was a really dark time in the nation of Israel. Get this, Judges 21-25, the very last verse in the book of Judges, and the verse that immediately precedes Ruth chapter 1, reads like this. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Think about that. Think about that. Now, I want you to see this morning how this plays out in the first couple verses of Ruth chapter 1. Because in verse 1 of, of Ruth 1, we see that there was a famine in the land, right? And it seems apparent by his introductory remarks that the author wants us to see this famine in the ever-recurring, repeated cycles of the book of Judges. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions here this morning. Where in the cycle do you think this morning's text in Ruth 1 is occurring? Disobedience? 
discipline, repentance, or deliverance? Well, the famine is actually happening between discipline and repentance. May it's heard, who's behind the famine? Say it. It's not a trick question. Yeah, God. I know it's hard to say it, but it was God. Was he mad? Did he just want to kill a few people? No. The Bible teaches us that God's discipline is always rooted in love. Now think about this. His chosen nation, his own people, were running to the deep end of the pool, metaphorically, and they can't swim. And so he is rescuing them from their own foolishness and their own sin. Parents, you do this all the time with your kids. I know you do. You discipline them. Why? Because, because you love them. You want the best for them. And may I say, God's loving discipline here was enacted in order to save them from certain self-inflicted destruction because of their unbelief. Well, well the next couple set of verses there in Ruth 1, outside of this famine, we actually not now start to see this family on the move. And you can see that in verses 1 and 2. We're introduced to a man by the name of Elimelech. Now, let me ask, does anybody know what the name Elimelech actually means? My God is king. My God is king. That's what Elimelech means. And Elimelech takes his family into the country of Moab. Now, you got to know that the original readers of this book would be completely, completely shocked at, at Elimelech's actions here. They would, be, they would be disgusted even at his decision. And to help you to feel on some level what they were feeling, we actually have to stretch back to Judges chapter 3, where we're told that Eglon, the king of the Moabites, actually oppressed the nation of Israel for nearly two decades and, and the people of the Moabites were actually people known to sacrifice their own children to a made-up false god named Chemosh. And so when, when the original readers would be reading this text here in Ruth 1 and, and hearing this story and knowing what Elimelech was doing, they'd be like, oh, Elimelech, I, I know, I know you're just trying to provide for your family. But Moab? Really? You're going there? And that's in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 and 5, we actually see that this foolish decision by Elimelech leads to three funerals. And our hearts go out, don't they? Well, we don't know these women, but, but death has probably touched your life in one way or another. And so we've, we feel for Naomi. We feel for Ruth and we feel for Orpah. If you didn't know, the author really is is painting a picture of, of really absolute despair here. Because being a widow was, was hard enough, but in a male-dominated culture, and, and especially in a foreign land, it was a recipe for disaster. Now, now, consider, now consider the irony that the author of Ruth is presenting to us in just the first five verses. Think about the irony here. Does anyone know what the name Bethlehem means, how it's literally translated. Bethlehem means house of bread. So get this. In Bethlehem, the house of bread, there is no bread. Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, packs up his family and takes them out of the king's promised land. 
They leave a land of famine, and yet some die in a land of plenty. What's going on here? It makes, it makes no rational sense. But, but gang, it makes complete sense spiritually. Complete sense. Now, sometimes we read scripture very passively, and we don't, we don't really place ourselves in the story, but when we do that, gang, we actually often miss what the Lord wants us to really pull out of the text. And I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about application, but implication. And so the question, the major question here this morning is, what would Elimelech want to tell us? If he, could, if he could actually come back from the grave and stand right here with us today, what would he want to tell us? Well, I think he would tell us a number of things, but here's three real quick here this morning. Here's the first one. Often what you think will give you life, the way that God intended it, won't. Often what you think will give you life, won't. Now, now look back at the text. Elimelech looked in the pantry and he decided, well, I got to do something. I got to pack up the family and head on into Moab. Now, let's remember that cycle again that I talked about earlier. Disobedience, discipline, repentance, and deliverance. We said that our story is occurring at a, in a certain part of that cycle. And what was the word that we used? We, we talked about it already. It's this idea of, of discipline. Elimelech, Elimelech, you need to repent and you need to trust in God. But what did he do? He decided to run in the opposite direction, didn't he? Rather than repenting from his unbelief in a my God will supply all of my needs kind of God, he packed up the family and the discipline was now actually extended in his life. He thought in his estimation, well, there's food in Moab, and so he chooses to leave. In other words, watch this. He goes to find life outside of the promised land. Now, hopefully you're tracking with me here this morning, because here's, here's the question for us. And I know a lot of questions. That's the way I look at Scripture. I, I just pose questions to it, and hopefully it gives us the answer. And, and, and here, here's the thing. What, what is every Jew know back at this point intellectually. Every Jew knows that there's no life outside of the promised land. That's what every Jew knew intellectually, that there's no life outside of the promised land. Yes, the provision in Moab, it tastes good for the moment, but afterwards, Naomi comes back into Bethlehem and she actually says it, she's bitter. You can read about that in, in Ruth 1.20. Gang, for Elimelech, the result for looking for life outside of God's provision and promises actually brought death. Think about that. And so that was the Jews back then, but, but what does every Christian know today? What does every Christian know today? Every Christian knows that there's no spiritual life outside of a grace-based, faith-filled relationship with Jesus Christ. Emmaus Road, you've got to get this. The move of Elimelech here is a picture of sin. It's a picture of sin. Because you see, when we sin, we choose anything other than God to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. Genesis 1 and 2 really teaches us that we were made to be in a relationship with him and find satisfaction only in him. But then Genesis 3 rolls around and it teaches us 
that our own sin and our own disobedience actually, it actually brought death. It's when Adam and Eve didn't treasure God above all else. They no longer believed in him as their ultimate provider and sustainer. So I got to ask you here this morning. What are you treasuring today? What are you treasuring in your life today? Where are you trying to find identity and meaning? Where are you trying to find purpose and life full and free outside of Jesus? Where is that for you? I know where it is for me. Where is it for you? It might be work. It might be financial security. It might be relationships, looks, health. Social media, music, power, influence, authority. We can go on and on, can't we? Now, don't get me wrong. Those things aren't bad things, but they can become sin for us. They can. You see, a desire for for even a good thing can become a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. You know what I'm talking about? So what are you treasuring today? In Matthew 6.21, Jesus actually teaches where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, your treasure and my treasure, it controls our emotions. It controls our desires. All of us live that way. It's inescapable. It really is. And then Jesus lays an absolute smackdown when he says that that. What, what really controls our heart really controls our behavior. Which means that you and I do what we do because we think it will get us what we want. And that's what we see here in the book of Ruth, don't we? Which leads me to the second principle. Okay? Here's the second one. Temptation's road to sin, it starts hard, but gets easier with each and every step. Temptation's road to sin, it starts hard, but gets easier with each and every step. Again, look at the text. It's right there. Elimelech certainly didn't intend for this to happen. He he didn't say, man, I'm going to pack up my family, head into Moab, and then die there. That wasn't his intent. And the reason, well, look look at these three words I want you to, to, to focus in on here today. Verse one says sojourn. This is the ESV. Verse 2 says remained, and verse 4 says lived. Now, I know this is an oversimplification. It's sojourn in verse 1, remained in verse 2, and lived in verse 4. It's an oversimplification. I I get that. But here we, we find, gang, in essence, the progression of sin. You see, the overnighter, it becomes an extended stay. And the extended stay actually becomes home ownership. That's what we see. Uh, listen to Psalm 1-1. It's so similar. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Did you, did you note the progression? It, it, it's not starting hard. Walking's not hard, but it's harder. It, you're walking, and then what's happening? Then you're standing, and then finally you're sitting. 
Emmaus Road, that's the progression of Elimelech's sin here. And it's ours too. Think about this. With the first step down sin's path as a Christian, your conscience, it is, it is red hot. Your heart is resisting it by the Spirit's power. Your will is in the best shape it will ever be to not give in to that temptation. But after that first step, after that first step, your strength, it really begins to wane, doesn't it? And your will and your heart are diminished. And after that second and that third and that fourth step down sin's easy path, the trip down temptation's road, it starts to seem normal. And then after the fifth and the sixth and the seventh step, you get to the point when you're actually doing something wrong, but it actually feels right. And eventually it becomes no big deal in taking multiple trips down sin's easy path. You know what I'm talking about? I'm sure you do. All the while, it's taking you further and further and further away from the only thing that you truly need, the only one who truly satisfies. And that leads me to the last point here this morning. That Elimelech's problem was not a lack of bread in Bethlehem. Elimelech's problem was a lack of faith in God. Elimelech's problem was not a lack of bread in Bethlehem. It was a lack of faith in God. Again, I don't want to be oversimplistic here this morning, but what Elimelech's family needed, listen up, parents, listen up. What Elimelech's family needed, what they truly needed in this moment was for their spiritual leaders of their family to take a step of faith toward their king, toward the Lord. Not pack up the wagon, harness up the donkeys, and take the kids into Moab out of the promised land. Think about this. Think about this. Did the famine kill everybody back in Bethlehem? Nope. We learn that in verse 6. Actually, people survived. Why? Because the God of the Bible is a God who provides, and he provided for those who remained, who trusted, who had faith in him, even if that faith wasn't perfect. Because I, I think it's safe to assume that the people who remained, they had doubts from time to time. Because circumstances were tough. But I love the promise found in 2 Timothy 2.13 that when we are faithless, even in those moments, God remains faithful. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Elimelech designed his own solution for his family. He acted with his own reason, with his own small-mindedness, like we do so often spiritually. Can you admit that here this morning? Can you admit that every time you and I design our own path, when we make our own plans, that we are in essence taking a step down sin's easy path, the wide road, instead of trusting God's promises and provision and providence and purposes? Now, lest we be really hard on Elimelech alone here this morning, can I remind you that unless you weren't in the room or you were sleeping or weren't paying attention or weren't being honest, all of you raised your hand in the beginning 
and said, I've walked down that road too. I've messed up just as bad. And I've walked down that road multiple times. In fact, I've sinned against the Lord in my own unbelief and sin. In closing, I want you to consider something here this morning, something that I believe is life-changing, in fact. And the issue, gang, is not whether we've traveled this road, because we all have. We all have. We've all confessed that here this morning. The issue really is living a life of daily repentance. Because you see, there's true and lasting bread. True and lasting bread for anyone who repents from their sinful, unbelieving ways and trusts God to provide everything that they need spiritually. And the reason I can proclaim that with 100% truth here this morning is because a thousand years later, after Elimelech walked down sin's wide, easy path and didn't trust in God's provision and promise and looked for life outside of the promised land, a thousand years later, there was another man from Bethlehem. Wasn't there? There was another man who actually was baptized by his cousin with a baptism of repentance. And not for the repentance of his own sin because he himself was sinless, but for all of us half-hearted repenters who confess our sin and then go right back to that sin again and again and again and again and again. A thousand years later, there was a man who would go on to live the sinless life that you and I were called to live. He would walk down the narrow road that actually leads to life. And then he willingly went to the cross in our place to die the sinner's death that was our death to die. And daily biblical repentance, gang, repentance that leads to confession of sin and forgiveness and to putting sin to death in us is done in no other name than the name of this man, the name of Jesus. Scripture teaches that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads one to repentance, that it's actually the grace of God that allows us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions in our life. And gang, it's the Lord's kindness and the grace of God that is perfectly expressed in the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. Emmaus wrote, everybody lives in pursuit of something. Everybody lives for some kind of treasure, some kind of safety, some kind of assurance. And I am deeply persuaded here this morning that all of us, all of us here this morning have lived in pursuit of something and that something, whatever it is, has failed you. It's failed you. It hasn't given you the meaning and the purpose that you had hoped. It hasn't given you lasting identity, and you're lost in the middle of your search for this treasure. But here's the bottom line, gang. What we ultimately need and what God actually promises is not a situation. It's not a location. It's not a possession, a position, or earthly relationship. No, Jesus said, Jesus said with all authority, I am the bread of life. And he who feeds on me will never die. Will never die. And have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. You see, what we truly need, gang, 
And what God the Father has already given through Christ Jesus, his son, is himself. Is himself. Now, what could possibly be a better treasure than that? You think on that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your graciousness in the midst of our sin. We don't bring anything at all and say, hey, I'm deserving. The only thing that we bring to this relationship is the sin that makes your salvation necessary. And so, Lord, we're sorry, and we repent, and we turn back to you. Lord, teach us how to live in grace, how to declare your grace, and to demonstrate your grace to this exhausted world. And we'll give you thanks, praise, and glory, and honor, for you alone are worthy of it. And all God's people said, amen.